Hello, and welcome to You Philosopher. Today, I wanted to look at the question of what is the most powerful form of protest? Certainly, there's reason to look at this in terms of the fact that, that there have been some pretty significant protests going on as of late, most notably the women's marches that have been occurring. But certainly, there's a question in terms of, well, if we have millions and millions of people marching, how much does that accomplish? And we don't have to look all that far back to look at the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was certainly significant in terms of its numbers, but one wonders, well, what was really accomplished there? And that's not to say that protest isn't very powerful, that, you know, marches, obviously, um, uh, famously, uh, the civil rights marches accomplished a great deal. This isn't to say that they, that they are not powerful or that they are not important, or that even if an immediate end isn't achieved, that they're not worthwhile. That, in fact, getting out one's voice seems at the very least to, to remind people that one is there and that this idea is important seems a key goal in and of itself that's accomplished just by virtue of being in the protest, that other people can see that they share with you similar values and that they are not alone in their, in their feeling of being somehow ignored or that something needs to be changed. But... Having said all that, with some uh, recent protests that seem like they haven't gotten much traction, at least in terms of policy change, there are those who perhaps feel as if, well, what's, what's the point? We, we did those marches and we didn't accomplish a lot. Uh, just the other day, I was listening to, uh, uh, to a story about uh, a man who was uh, one of the key movers in the Occupy Wall Street movement. And he has since kind of given up on it in that way. And he's instead encouraging that people to go into local politics, that he thinks that that might be a more effective means by which to accomplish change. So what comes to my mind when I, when I think about this, this question is, well, firstly, we, we don't want to ignore the importance of protests, but what's kind of the other side of it? What, what, are, we, what are we trying to accomplish through protest or, or through uh, the kinds of actions that we take when we march or hold signs or so on and so forth. Key to, in addition to being heard, or at least to make note of the fact that you exist, is in fact accomplishing some sort of policy goal. And given policies that have come down the pike as of late, people, some people may even feel that they haven't accomplished much. Now, that's not to say that there aren't others who feel that a great deal has been accomplished, but when we look at some movements that are taking place, certainly those movements seem to be, in terms of policy, those movements seem to be in terms of how can we kind of make things easier for business? How can we make changes that benefit business, make it easier to do business? Particularly, there's an idea that we really want to be able to help small businesses. And so we've had some interesting motions, obviously, um, uh, there, there within in the last couple of days, uh, important changes in regulations uh, in terms of coal and gas and energy regulations that some environmentalists think will be decimating, but other industry analysts suggest that this will be very helpful for making the United States more competitive in the energy in industry, but certainly at the very least, protections that theoretically are there to help protect the environment, and thusly, those of us who live in the environment are, are being rolled back. And so there's been a litany of kind of these motions from 
from movements in Congress to try and reduce uh, ethical protections and ethical oversights um, to recent votes for changing issue uh, transparency, so repeal of transparency rules for oil companies in regards to for, uh, foreign payments. So, and, and we're likely to look at, at more of these movements that after, uh, after the collapse of the housing bubble and the Great Recession, that there, there were a series of laws that were put in place to try and protect the economy and, and protect the populace as a whole. Um, and some people view them as not necessary anymore. And so we're looking at some, some repeals that do that. And so this is all just to say, well, there's those who are probably saying to themselves, well, what's the point, right? Um, we made these changes for the environment and we marched, marched for the environment and now we're just seeing it be repealed, right? We've made these, we've, we, we made these marches and, and changes in terms of government and the, um, the, uh, the voice voicing of minorities within government and now we have a government that is uh that has more white men in it than it than it has say in in in, in, the, in the last few decades at least so so what what can we do uh, what have we in fact accomplished is, is anything really significant be changed and, and i'm going to leave that aside right so i'm going to try and leave aside um whether or not these movements are right or wrong, and I'm going to try and leave aside for the sake of this conversation whether or not something has actually been accomplished or not. Instead, I want to look at, well, if people are feeling like they're not accomplishing as much as they would like to, um, what might be one of the best means by which to do that? And interestingly enough, I think it actually comes out of what we are seeing happening with companies and the kind of repeal of rules that we see that are supposed to protect consumers and the promotion of the idea like we want we want more right for higher states right where companies have less obligation to uh, their employees right there's less there's there's fewer union rights and also union regulations and union requirements so on and so forth well basically what it comes down to is this Let's say, in fact, just kind of hypothetically, that these motions that are kind of making it easier for companies to do business and do the things that they want to do and be able to make more money, let's say that those are, in fact, actually strong capitalist moves, right? That those are kind of good libertarian ways of looking at things. And let's say that that's actually going to be effective. That, in other words, that if we are, in fact, actually a capitalism, that these are the right motions to make and that the government shouldn't have its hands in business in this way. In other words, that the people, in fact, are, are, are the ones who should be able to determine what or should not be the case in terms of business being done by virtue of what they purchase, not by virtue of government itself. So again, this is just hypothetical, but let's say that is, in fact, the case, just kind of with a broad brush. Well, it becomes kind of immediately clear to me that the best form, then, of making social change is uh, through purchasing and not purchasing. In other words, the thing that I think we might forget a little bit that when we're dealing with this, oh, well, these companies just have, they can just kind of do whatever they want. They have carte blanche. There's nothing to protect the people. Well, still technically there is. And that's always kind of been the excuse for business to be able to do what business wants to do, which is that, but if people didn't want this thing that's killing them, then they wouldn't buy it. So the government has no right to tell us that we can't sell it. So it's kind of that, that uh, you know, issue of cigarettes and the issue of you know double 
bacon cheeseburgers and the issue of the Ford Pinto, right? Famously, that car in some instances that the company knew if it was rear-ended, it might explode, right? That over and over again, the answer to this issue is, is, listen, if people didn't want it, they wouldn't buy it. And what the heck right does anyone have to say that they're not allowed to buy it? So then what you realize then is the key point that we're kind of missing is, is that, well, then that would mean that we shouldn't buy it. And I think we're dissuaded from that a little bit. That will in part because buying in a way that whatever whatever way that we feel is perhaps most ethically responsible also tends to be a little bit more expensive. Like so, in other words, whatever you feel is the best means by which to purchase also might be the more expensive way to do. So let's say you're someone who actually wants fewer pesticides on your food, right? Well, that tends to be a little bit more expensive. And so our tendency is to go, well, listen, Nick, I'm not made of money, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy the cheaper stuff, even if that means I'm exposed to fewer pesticides. Well, the problem is, is what we forget is, is that we vote very powerfully with our dollars. We are in fact saying to companies, when we give them our money that yes, we approve of the way that they do business. And not only are we saying that we approve of the way that they do business, but we like the product, we like the way that the product is marketed, we like the, that it's effective in its marketing, we like the way that it is that it is packaged and shipped to us, that we like that we like what's being done with that product. And even you might say, but Nick, I'm not really saying that. I just happen to need or, or want this aspect of it. But there's no way for a company to discern that. They have no way to know when you buy the product that, well, you don't really agree entirely with the fact that they are, um, you know, using children in sweatshops. They have no way to, they simply know that, okay, well, people are, this works. It's kind of Darwinian in that way. Like this, the companies that are going to make money are going to survive. And the ones that don't make money won't survive. And so, they have no way of knowing kind of individually, oh, well, when this person gives me their money, they don't really necessarily like the, that we marketed this way or they didn't like, they know whatever they were doing was working and so they have no reason not to continue doing what they're doing. Now, that's not to say that there aren't companies out there that are very ethically minded and that kind of refuse to capitulate no matter what the institutional or systemic or governmental or social pressures are, that they know that there's something that they believe to be particularly right and that they're gonna continue to do that. And in all fairness, this sometimes is in fact a company killer. Not always. There are some that that thrive by kind of taking some sort of moral stance, but there are those that um, try to take those stances and they just can't compete. And part of the reason why they can't compete, and this is where consumers have so very much power, is, is because we, unlike some other countries in the world, uh, we make our decisions on investment based on quarterly models, right? So every three months, uh, a company has to be able to justify to uh, its uh, shareholders, right, and, and to, to the people that are supposed to be making money off of the investment in the company. Every quarter, they have to be able to say, see, we're making more money than we were. And that's intense. There's a tremendous amount of pressure that to some degree, I think we should actually be sympathetic towards, right? That the people who are in charge of, of, of companies, people who are trying to get a company off the ground, people who are trying to, to make something happen in business, every three months, they have to be able to show fairly significant growth. Like even just keeping the same amount kind of, of market share, making the same amount of money is basically just kind of viewed as going down. And it's a, it's a kind of stagnation that you're not supposed to have. So CEOs have a very short uh, half-life. They're turned over very, very, very quickly. And so 
when we look at it and we go, well, we want to make a kind of a corporate change. The simple fact of the matter is, is it really only starts to take about three months before uh, our buying patterns affect the way something is being sold, the way it's being uh, marketed to people, the way it's being made, who it's being made by, so on and so forth. And I do think that there is a little bit of a tendency uh, in companies and our, our social structure and governmentally, so on and so forth, to kind of shy away from that, to kind of disempower the consumer a little bit by virtue of saying, well, there's nothing you can really do about it. You know, you might as well just buy the stuff you like and enjoy yourself. And I mean, your your little dollar at the end of the day isn't going to isn't going to make some sort of huge change in a company. No, it really will. A, just one person by themselves in purchasing something. Uh, if, they, if there's something that they purchase with some sort of regularity over the course of their lifetime, we're not just talking about thousands of dollars, depending on what the thing that they're buying, we're talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, which in fact actually does matter. So in other words, long story short, imagine if all of these millions of people who are marching because they don't like something is being done, that they think that something is problematic, just kind of got together and said, you know what, we're going to turn our sights on, I don't know, ExxonMobil, BP right? Whatever company it is that they've decided isn't doing business the way that they want to and said, you know what? We're just not going to buy from them for three months, right? We're talking about a huge, I mean, being able to bring a company to its knees very, very, very quickly. And if you show a kind of consistency with that, right? When the company comes out and says, oh, we're so sorry that we had that oil spill. We're going to make a difference. And like, if we don't actually see that difference to do the same thing again, we'll cause them to make make that change because they have to in order to survive it's so yes they might still continue to make millions if not billions of dollars but because they have to show this steady increase right if they show that that increase is slowing down they have to start answering to shareholders and you might say well nick that's first of all that's paranoid <laughs> and two that's unfair right? It's un-American to take out this kind of stuff on business. And, I, and I've seen that kind of argument where people will say something like, just because um, a business has a particular ethical perspective, like let's say uh, a business makes, uh, uh, gives money to uh, anti-gay uh, rights uh, lobbying, right? Well, if you stop buying from that company, right? So Chick-fil-A was dealing with that. If you stop buying from that company, well, that's unfair. You're taking that out on people who have nothing to do with it. There's employees and so on and so forth. But then the argument that you're kind of pushing on me sounds to starts to sound like what you're saying is we have an obligation to buy from people, which the last time I checked is literally a kind of communist argument, which is antithetical to the whole idea of where we started, which is people should be able to buy and sell as they choose without kind of governmental interaction. And that, in other words, there's no obligation. There's no social obligation. You get to decide as the buyer if something is what you believe in and if it's right. And if you don't, then you don't buy it. So we really then have no obligation. Now, don't get me wrong. To some degree, that might go a little bit too far, right? To, to, to say, well, I have no obligation to anyone. I have no obligation to the employees. I have no obligation to the people who might be harmed by my buying and selling choices. That doesn't seem like it makes for a happy, healthy society. But if we're going to live in a society that is in fact telling us, no, we're going to repeal all these rules. It's just business gets to do what business gets, gets to do. And if you buy it, you've said to them, yes, you're comfortable with that, then we are under tremendous responsibility as consumers to say to companies with our dollars, yes, 
good. That's awesome. Please keep doing that. I'm going to buy from you and it's going to cost me a little bit more money because I really believe in what you're doing. Or no, I, I, I don't like what you're doing. As far as the paranoia argument, just keep in mind that there are a lot of theorists that impact the way business is done. Like when people go to NBA programs and so on and so forth, they study a lot of theory on economics and ethics and how to deal with business. And two of the main thinkers in this are Milton Friedman and Albert Carr. Milton Friedman being hugely famous as an economist has had a huge impact right in the course of his lifetime on the way we do business here in the United States. And, and Carr also significantly kind of impacted the way that we think about what business obligation is. So Friedman's thought process being famously arguing that CEOs have no obligation to anyone other than shareholders, to anyone other than stockholders. They do not have an obligation to, to, to society. They do not have an obligation to the community. They do not have an obligation to the consumers because they are hired specifically by those shareholders to benefit the shareholders. And thusly, Friedman, uh, uh, Friedman argued, argued that, in fact, if a CEO is like, no, I'm not gonna do this, even though it'll make the company more money, even though it's unethical, that in fact, she, as a CEO, is doing something unethical. She was hired to do a particular job to benefit those stockholders, and now is putting some separate personal agenda and that has had a huge impact on how we do business. That tends to be how we think about it. Albert Carr famously argued that basically doing business is like a game of poker. Everyone knows when they sit down at a game of poker that people are gonna bluff. You don't get mad at people for bluffing. And in the same way, so he's arguing that we shouldn't get mad at people for kind of like, you know, if they're gonna show us milk in a commercial for cereal and it's actually Elmer's glue, well, that's just part of the game, you know, like you sit down and you, so they're trying to sell, we're trying to buy and everyone's trying to kind of get ahead, you know, and you can't really blame anyone for that. The bluffing's part of the game. Well, if this is all the case, and then what that means is that there's an awful lot, though not all, of people doing business who actually believe that they're in competition, both with the consumers and with their employer, employees, right? And you see that come out in the employees too, right? So employees who are willing to steal from their company, right? And the companies know that, right? So they're like, well, I'm leaving, you know, I just take a stapler now and then, right? Well, at the end of the day, that costs the company money. So the company's kind of taking that in terms of this playing poker model, right? Okay, you're gonna do that. We're gonna kind of try and catch you, but you know that uh, we're going to do what's in the best interest of our company as well, even if it means we're not paying you what you are actually worth, if you're not smart enough to know it. So classic example being in academia, they tend to just not give people raises in academia. You basically have to go out, get <laughs> like an offer from someone else and then come back and say, see, uh, I'm worthwhile, other people want to hire me. If you don't give me a raise, I'm going to go over that. Even if you have no intention of moving your family, like you're from Florida and, and the job's in Arizona. Even if you have no intention of doing that, you really don't want to and you love your job, you will never see a raise. And I had a very good friend who worked in uh, academia who just because she didn't have the heart to do that, she thought it was disingenuous to go around when you love your job and you feel loyal to your job to go and, and, and apply to other places. But the problem is, is that just really only benefited the university for which she was working. So, if the companies for which we work and the companies from which we're going to buy are gonna place themselves and us in a position such that they're gonna say, listen, 
we're going to do what's in our best interest because we assume that you're going to do what's in your own best interest, right? You're going to steal from us. You're going to download illegal media, right? You're going to sneak food into the theater. Well, right, we're playing by the same rules that you are. It's a basically just a poker game. And then the only real voice that we have, if we want to make them change something, is to stop buying from them. That being said, the positive side of that, because I feel like this sounds a little negative, is that you also can reward companies by voting for them with your dollars when they do things that you think are right. And there's a tremendous power in that too. So it becomes very important that we don't forget that we still have a tremendous say that no matter, for the most part, what happens in legislation right now, that we can make social change simply by choosing to go to a different store or buy a different product. So with that, I hope you have a wonderful week.